from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Joanne Miriam. Joanne describes how she almost became a Christian minister until she met her husband in seminary school. After becoming a Baha'i, she and her family have lived in the Crow Creek Reservation in South Dakota, South Carolina, Samoa, Fiji, Hawaii, the Navajo Reservation, and Maine. Plus, she's traveled to Siberia and plans to travel in Greenland. I started the interview by asking Miriam where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Bloomfield, New Jersey in the 40s and 50s. I was born right after Pearl Harbor, and my father went to war, and so the strong influence I had was not only my mother, but my grandmother. Frankly, they were wonderful examples of what they believed in as Christians, and it wasn't just caring for the people next door, but also the people in Africa. There was an embrace of evidently all kinds of people that I just wasn't aware of that was anything unusual, the diversity of people. Did you grow up with a very religious background then? It was just a very natural thing. It, uh, it happened to be in the Presbyterian Church. When I went to college, I went to the College of Worcester in Ohio, started out in sociology, and then it wasn't as interesting to me. There was a very powerful Pakistani man who was presenting in um, the religion courses, I was taking courses from him, and in fact, what I didn't know at the time, he was actually Christian, but he was giving us a view of the Hindu view of life, and I almost became a Hindu. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then after a couple of months, I decided that Christianity was more abundant. This is what I thought at at the time. But I was a religion major. Then I realized why liberal arts students go on to graduate school, because (laughs) you need some sort of a profession. (laughs) Actually, I had then went on to seminary at the San Francisco Theological Seminary, planning to go into the campus ministry. I met my husband there, who was actually from New York City, and he had only gone there as a means of having answers to questions, basic questions, and also he had a drama background and he wanted to go into the theater, doing theater with issues that were really important to people, you know, rather than light theater. He was very unlike what I would have thought I would have married, but we ended up getting married. And the thing was, before we were married, we knew a couple of things. One is that uh, at that point in time, there were such an emphasis on the overpopulation, and so we decided that we would maybe have one or two children and then adopt however many 
you know, we could manage. And the other thing is that we were both very interested in other cultures. In a way, that laid a foundation for, you know, the whole rest of our life. Why do you say that your husband-to-be at that time wasn't one that you had imagined you would marry? (laughs) You're asking the kinds of questions I wouldn't have expected. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you. (laughs) I almost married a professor friend of mine in college who I'd been very close to their family And then very suddenly on the second honeymoon with his wife, she drowned. You know, I don't need to go into the details, but after a year or so, he was thinking of me as a wife, thinking to marry because his children needed a mother and all of this. And he would have been everything my parents would have wanted, all the outer things, but the In between the inner things, he was very jealous. I was a youth leader in the local church. One of the youth came by, you know, and it could have been a high school or junior high. He he would be jealous of that young man. Or if I went to visit the retired missionaries that were in their 90s, he would be jealous of, the older missionary man, it, it was a very funny thing. And I thought about, you know, later, before I went to seminary, I thought if I married him, although he was in geography and oceanography and it would have been a romantic-looking life, but if I had married him, you know, it would be for all the outer things. I felt like, even though he was much older, I had to explain to him certain things. I was the person that would have to live with him. And so, you know, I ended up breaking up with him and went to seminary deciding I was complete in myself. And actually, when I was in in, uh, our first weeks in seminary, we had to go three weeks early to have intensive Hebrew. And one of the students had a really bad headache and ended up in the hospital. And we went to visit him and it turned out it was a brain tumor. He was from Princeton and New Jersey, and his parents came out, and actually Bert and I had a theater date that night, and we didn't even have to discuss the fact, well, of course we wouldn't go to the theater. We would stay and be with Park and his father. Here his father was 3,000 miles from home and dealing with this very unusual thing of his son having a brain tumor and that would either... He might not live, or he might be a vegetable. Anyway, there was, we didn't need to discuss. He knew what was important. And then there were several different surgeries that would, went for hours and hours and hours, and Bert could just talk about anything and everything with the parents and whoever was there in the waiting room, just kind of filling the time and taking their mind off what was going on. And I thought, aha, I guess I'm not complete in myself, because <laughs> mm. I could never have done that. And then there was a time when it looked, the mother just wanted to talk to me and pour out her heart, and there was nothing I could say. And yet I realized that was the best thing, just to have listened and listened. 
And so actually I realized that we complemented each other. And then even though outwardly <laughs> it was very different than what I thought I might have married, but as I look back now and it's been 46 years, if I had known and wanted to make the most selfish decision, this would have been it because he just has supported the whole family When I was saying about the church and my mother and grandmother, one of the things that I saw when I was young in church, say about eighth grade, they had a movie of a family that had adopted kids from all over the world. So, you know, your parents send you to church, and so you figure they are approving of what's happening in church. So it never occurred to me that that was anything unusual. After Bert and I got married and the time came to have children and they didn't come, so we just thought, well, we'd start the process for adoption. And we thought we would adopt hard-to-place children. The time that we started adoption, people were wanting somebody who looked like them, that had the same economic and educational background, and et cetera, et cetera. Joanne, what time frame is this? This would have been the 60s. I'll just say that for whatever it's worth, Bert is Armenian, and I'm a a Scottish and English background, but Bert is third-generation Armenian. So that that might be another reason why you weren't expecting (laughs) some exotic Um, Eastern person. Actually, yeah, it it was a mixed marriage in many ways. There were in-law problems. It was a difficult time, the the actual marriage. We don't even talk about the wedding. (laughs) But we started the process. When I sat with a social worker, I didn't have any limitations as far as the the age of the baby or background or anything. And and we went with the the county social services because they were doing, quote, the hard-to-place children. This was in Iowa, outside Iowa City. Bert was doing graduate work there at the time, working on his Ph.D. in drama. The social worker had previously worked in Illinois, and not in Cook County, but out of Galesburg. And the probation person there, whenever there was a child of mixed race, she would call her former social workers around the country because she knew once this child went into the Cook County system, this baby would just be lost. There would be no future. So she called around the country and happened to be one of our social workers. It ended up, it was just a matter of like almost eight weeks instead of two years. But one of the things I wanted to mention was that we said we had no limitations. It didn't matter what background, racial education, anything. She said, well, you have to have some limitation. So I thought, well, Bert and I were out to save the world. So I thought, well, I guess maybe not a handicapped child, thinking we want to save the world. Well, Shireen came into our life, very unusual person, a little girl who had such an influence on so many people. And she was so perfect and beautiful. You, you could not write a book about infant development using her as a basis because she was so unusual. 
by the time she was one, she started going backwards on her abilities. I mean, she never really improved in her walking. And then by the time she was two, she could no longer walk or talk or move or see or eat. But she was this spiritual being that had such an influence on people. And she lived for yet another five years. About a year before her passing, we were still in Iowa. Well, we were told she was terminal. They were thinking it was a missing gene. Well, they labeled it metachromatic leukodystrophy. Anyway, we're all terminal. Somehow I've always lived with the fact that I could die any time, car accident or whatever, so I wanted to make the most of every day. I've never had this thought of I would live a long time. It was always trying to make the most all the time, the most meaning. So I thought, you know, we're all terminal. And it wasn't until a year before we left Iowa that I was called to do some sort of presentation to foster parents with the idea that they might be willing to take on a handicapped child. Well... I never thought of her as being handicapped. I thought of her as having limitations, but not handicapped. This is just stepping back a bit. When we first brought her home, I didn't know that it might be a problem with my father having a child of color. I was only to find out that years later. And I'm glad I didn't know, because that might have put me in some sort of mind. Anyway... When I came to Iowa, Bert was doing his Ph.D. in speech and drama, and I was hired as the director of the daycare center that was being sponsored by the campus ministry. And at that point, you didn't need to necessarily have a degree in early childhood education. So the fact that I had gone to seminary, and I ended up switching when we got married to Christian education getting a master's instead of a BD, something I never really wanted to get, wanted to do. But when we were both in this three-year Bachelor of Divinity program and decided to get married, I thought, well, one BD in the family was enough. So I went and got my uh, master's in Christian education, which it turned out to be so much more valuable For myself in the future, it covered various education and psychology and group dynamics. Meanwhile, they were doing church government, et cetera, et cetera. Well, while we were getting back to Iowa now, you know, we knew that Shireen had a limited time. And at the same time, we had been asked to be a group home for teenage girls. There had never been a group home for teenage girls in the county. This is Johnson County. And I looked around for houses that were big enough that we could do this and couldn't find any. We were renting this little house. So I asked our landlord if we couldn't attach a trailer to the house so that we could make space, more room, and an extra bathroom. And he agreed. So we cut a hole in the side of the house and and added this. I tell you, our life was so rich then. (laughs) We ended up basically with about five teenage girls, all with 
different backgrounds and ethnic and racial compositions. It was, well, two things. It was during the Vietnam War, and Bert was trying to educate people about how we got involved. He was working for the National Student Association and traveling around to different universities as a speaker. He was trying to change the University of Iowa, and his dissertation committee just really didn't want to give him ever a Ph.D., even though he had finished his coursework. And the San Francisco Mine Troop had asked him to be their director for a year, and so he was going to do that and write his dissertation on guerrilla theater, which is street theater having to do with issues. Well, here with this whole thing of the Vietnam War, you know, I longed for peace, but nobody had a plan, not even Joan Baez. <laughs> so there was that longing. There was the wonderment about Shireen, and it was both the meaning of her suffering and the next world. Now, in the Bible, it says a few things, but you have to have a lot of hope. <laughs> I was looking also because of her, and then our teenage girls. I felt like my life was going to be happy, but I didn't think that theirs would be. When you're just living all together, you know that there's no difference between them and you, and had I been in their situation growing up, I would have been in their predicaments. That didn't seem just. And then knowing and seeing that there was no justice, particularly in this country, if you were a person of color or poor, there was favoritism. All these things caused me to look. One of my friends had been telling me that one of her friends who lived in Sioux City, about six hours away, had been telling her about the Baha'i faith. She wanted us to talk. Well, it turned out that her friend talked her into going to the Jamaica conference. It was the international conference in Jamaica at that time. When they came back, I had been a director of the daycare center, and then there had been an, another daycare center that was formed, and Mary Beth was the director, and I was on their board, and I was at a meeting of parents, and an older woman who was presenting. And I was thinking, you know, this was the hippie time, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm really beyond this. It was about 10 o'clock, and these two, Dolores and Mary Beth, came walking into the meeting. They just came back, drove in from having driven all the way from Florida to Iowa, coming from the conference in Jamaica, and they started to say all these ideas. And I thought, well, that's where I met. That night, after the meeting was closed, I went to Mary Beth's apartment, and Dolores told me all of these things. Now, I had had a good education. My father worked for British Airways, so when I was younger, I had traveled to different parts of the world. We had other people from other parts of the world staying at our house, and yet I'd never heard these names. I never heard Baha'u'llah and some of these names, but I just listened, and I got home, 
we lived outside of town, about eight miles out in the country. And I got home. Everybody was asleep. And then I woke up early in the morning. And at that little time, you know, just before you get up, when your consciousness is awake, I realized this was what I was looking for. And it just happened that that morning, Dolores was going to go back to Sioux City, six hours away. She tried to find our house. She came to the house to say goodbye. And I said that I wanted to become a Baha'i. Well, she was in shock because usually people around universities will study and study and study, and then they decide. It's often the people who are not able to read and write that will have dreams or will know through other intuitive ways. So she was just shocked. And then because we now had a second child who is also an African-American mixture, our second child was Raheem, I wanted her to be his godmother for two reasons. One was if I died... I wanted him to know about this faith, and we had decided that any children of color, we would want people of color to be their godparents for the simple reason of being able to communicate how you survive as a person of color in this country. We never used the word racism. That wasn't in the vocabulary at the time. All I knew that I did know you were treated differently. Anyway, I can just picture her now. Here she is. She's African-American with this great big Angela Davis hairdo, this afro, just holding herself together, looking out the window. <laughs> she was so surprised. She ended up staying for a couple of hours. While she was there, the social worker came, and I thought, oh, great. Because we hadn't officially adopted Rahim yet. It would be so many months, like a year from the time we first started. I thought, oh, good, she could meet his godmother. So I went to introduce, and I said, and this is his godmother, Dolores. And then I had to look, turn and look at her and say, what's your last name? <laughs> and, well, I think the social worker somehow just did not hear it, but... Dolores will tease me about, little did she know that in that instant, that morning, I just changed the religion of the family. And <laughs> so my husband has never formally embraced the faith. Well, I should say he's never registered, because he certainly embraces it and tells people about it, et cetera, et cetera. Mind you, he first started to say this in the 70s, and he said, he decides the important things, whether China should be admitted into the United Nations and who we should go to war with. And I just do the small things in the family, you know, like the religion of the family, where the family's going to live. <laughs> anyway, before we left Iowa, the Vietnam War, when it was over, they started this program of physician's assistance, which I think most people know what it is now. It it's not the best name because in many places and you're almost working independently of doctors. Anyway, the purpose was 
what to do with all of the medics that came back and how to get health care to areas where the regular doctors wouldn't go. And this would be like the very rural areas and the inner cities. Well, he went back to school. He went to the University of Iowa Medical School to do that. It's a shorter program than the regular MDs, but they use the same books. So by that time, we would be ready to go overseas because he had a profession that he could offer. And when you go as a Baha'i, it's not like missionaries where you are sponsored by a church. Baha'is go with some profession that they offer in the community, and you do your work, and you are a part of the community, and you help in whatever way that you can. He actually went through this organization called Option AmDoc, Option American Doctors. They would have lists of all these organizations, places where they needed particular skilled people, doctors, nurses, or specialists. Sometimes it was a volunteer, sometimes it was a stipend, sometimes it was a contract. It just depends on the place. So at one point, somebody asked me, well, where do you think you're going? And I said, well, I think Africa. Now, mind you, I'd always hoped to go to Africa. I said, but there's also a possibility in South Dakota. And then I said to his friend, hopefully not South Dakota. (laughs) And then I knew it. As soon as those words came out of my mouth, that's where we ended up. That's, I mean, that was where we first went. Mm-hmm. It was on the Crow Creek Reservation in, in the middle of South Dakota. And we were there for four years. And he was the, the doctor for the reservation. He was, quote, working under a doc who was a surgeon who lived about 60 miles away in the nearest big town. But basically, he would go to the clinic, and then after the clinic, people would come to the house. One of the funny things, we oftentimes, he'd be called out, you know, in the middle of the night in the winter and really difficult to get out to go to somebody's house, and there wouldn't be anything wrong. This happened any number of times. Well, he found out just before we left that they used to have bets. (laughs) I guess some of the policemen or some other people about that certainly he must drink because every doctor they ever knew drank. So they were trying to catch him. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons he'd be called out for so many times. But anyway, he, he didn't drink. Was that your influence, being a Baha'i? Well, actually, that's interesting. Yeah. And it wasn't anything I said that you shouldn't drink, but I realized now, talking with you, really, he has embraced the faith, even though he's never registered, because there were different things that he was involved in or thought or did. You know, he wasn't a heavy drinker, but we would, when we lived in California, we'd have wine at dinner. But then when after we came a Baha'i, it was just, we didn't. We also didn't do it with the foster girls and all of that. But several things that he had kind of believed, he just changed his belief. When we went to South Dakota, Shireen was with us. 
it was in like a hospital bed, an old-fashioned one that we had painted, and it was in the living room, and everything around her was pretty. It didn't look like a sick bed. But people would come in sick later hours. You know, we went in September, and that very first winter, she got the flu or pneumonia, whatever it was, she got ill. In Iowa City, we had a wonderful chiropractor who used the toughness method, which was very specific with adjustments, and she basically was the one who kept her alive and well for so many years. I mean, when Shireen's lungs would fill, we would take her to the chiropractor mainly for her comfort, and within a half hour, she was able to breathe easy. We weren't trying to prolong her life, but just give her comfort. We just sensed what she needed. And even though when people came to visit, mind you, this is back in Iowa, maybe students would come and say, well, shouldn't you be doing this or that as far as either mental exercise or physical exercise? It just seemed like it would be annoying to her. We had just intuitively done what we thought was best. After we went to South Dakota and we didn't have the access to the kind of chiropractic care that we'd had, Shireen ended up passing, and it was on the first day of fast. We had about two weeks, so we could see where she was just going. And I wrote to a friend, this is going back to Mary Beth, and I said, she'll be passing soon, and that I'm praying that all happens with family unity and Baha'i law as praying for both because what I had found out is Bert had arranged for her to be transported three hours to to Falls to the hospital there and they would do an autopsy and use whatever could be used for other people in the future and I said and then what and he said well There would be nothing left, so I've already arranged for her to be cremated. I didn't want to argue with him, and cremation is against Baha'i law. And and we're buried, you know, within an hour's travel distance, and I thought if she's buried in Sioux Falls, that wouldn't have any meaning. And so I just prayed for both, that there'd be family unity without any argument, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it would be according to Baha'i law. And the day of her passing, there was a snowstorm, a blizzard. And I happened to be at the table right next to her bed. I was working on actually some child education task force work. And I don't know exactly when it happened because it was just quiet. The other kids were watching Sesame Street. It was just quiet. I had been given the impression that it would be a very difficult, violent death, a very traumatic death, but it was just quiet. Of course, my immediate reaction was to go into the bedroom. I shouldn't say of course. I don't know. You just, I went in and I just wailed, but then I realized now she could be with me all the time. You know, I had been a part of this National Education Task Force Committee that was working on curriculum development for the Baha'is, 
and we met periodically in different parts of the country. During those meetings, I always would call back and talk to her, and, and even though she couldn't hear me, I could hear her breathing and the change in her breathing. But now I thought, with her passing, she can always be with me. She won't just be limited to where her body is. The head of the tribe, the chairman, came, and she arranged for a pine box to be made, and another person gave us a star quilt that traditionally you would wrap the body in a star quilt to warm them for their journey. And she was buried the next day, and there was a group of singers on the reservation that did several old traditional children's hymns. It was all in Lakota, and it was so touching. And normally when I could say so much about Shireen, I I didn't really say much at all because it was very cold. She was just lowered down, you know, with the rope, and it was very simple. Some people came back to the house for refreshments. People had brought for her gravesite plastic flowers. And for the first time, I really appreciated plastic flowers. <laughs> I had bought a rose, two roses. It seemed like coral was kind of her color. And I had one go with her and then one for the house. Later the night after she was buried, this one friend on the reservation, she called, and she was just crying. She was the one who had called every day about how was Shireen. Her husband, who was very jealous of our friendship, and I think worried because I was a Baha'i, and they were Christians, he wouldn't allow her to go, and she was so sad that she couldn't go to the service. So I went and I brought her the one rose that I had saved for us and gave it to her. And the next day, from the National Task Force Committee, this beautiful bouquet of fresh flowers arrived. And when I talked to everybody at the next meeting that we had, their immediate thought was, oh, no, it came late, it came late. I said, no, it was the perfect time because then we had fresh flowers and I had given my only fresh flower away. There's a couple of things now attached with this. One is that she was buried in the Presbyterian Cemetery on the reservation. Every cemetery is, you know, one's the Catholic and one's the Episcopal and... So I called my grandmother. My grandmother was the only one in my family who, when I told her about the faith, she listened with interest. She didn't dismiss it. Most others dismissed it. I'm still the only person biological <laughs> in my biological family who's a Baha'i. Anyway, I told her that Shireen was buried in the Presbyterian Cemetery. I thought she'd be so pleased. Because we all grew up in this Presbyterian church in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and, and therefore the children and grandchildren and 
on and on? And her response was, well, we haven't always been Presbyterians. (laughs) Only the last 50 years. Shireen was such a holy soul. And, you know, we hear that these holy souls have such an effect. Well, at that time, and this was in 76, there had been a goal in the plan that the United States Baha'is were trying to accomplish. They had many goals, but one of the goals was to have spiritual assemblies. This is the body that would guide the Baha'is of an area, of a locality, that there would be assemblies on 25 reservations. Well, that seemed like the most impossible goal because there were only assemblies on 12 reservations, and it took years and years to gain the trust. Well, I feel that Shireen, as this holy soul, it it affects. We ended up having assembly within the year of her passing, actually within a year of our moving there. It was unheard of. Some of the other reservations that we'd been in contact with were so excited it had a domino effect. And by midway of the five-year plan, 25 assemblies were formed, and it was the first major goal of the five-year plan. The members of these Native assemblies were invited to national convention as special guests. And at one point, one of the Navajos was able to get up and speak, and he said, we need a place for all of the Baha'is to gather that's not a family home, because some of the families, some are Baha'is, and yet within the same family there may be various Christian denominations, and we need a place for the Baha'is to gather so we're not not a problem to any of the family members. Evidently, boxes were passed. People put in money, they put in their jewelry, and that was what was the beginning of what was to become the Native American Baha'i Institute that's located in Hauk on the Navajo Reservation. I think I should jump ahead. The last year, I didn't know it was going to be the last year. We, we were on the reservation for four years. In our fourth year, there was a great need for people to go down to South Carolina, where tens of thousands had come into the faith uh, within the last several years, what we would call consolidate the communities, helping the communities get on their feet and how to function. And I went down to help them. I did spend nine months as the program director there, but then Bert had found that they needed somebody in American Samoa in the South Pacific. They needed a PA, physician's assistant, and on the outer island where Margaret Mead had done her work. What I didn't know is that he had always wanted to go to the Pacific. And we were in Samoa for 10 years, and six of those years were on this small outer island. And very grateful for that because the culture was still intact, and the culture was, well, let's just say 
that the values might be the same, like courtesy, but they're expressed in opposite ways. So in a way, we had to be bicultural, <laughs> and our, our kids really grew up to be more uh, thinking of themselves as Samoan can rather you, than anything else. Joanne, can you give an yeah. example? Say in this country, if you were going to somebody's house or in an office, you would wait to be invited in and you would wait to be told to sit down. In Samoa, the houses are a lot more simple, but you would sit down first so that your head would be lower. That would be the polite thing to do rather than standing over somebody who was sitting down. And especially if it's an elderly person. You know, I think of our children having more Samoan in them, whereas I would have less, and yet it's been years, and yet if I'm sitting in a chair and a small elderly woman comes over, and I'm a tall person, and she wants to speak to me, I feel such a conflict inside. I feel in the American way I should stand, and yet that seems so wrong because it's overpowering. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It just—it doesn't seem right to stand and be so tall looking down on this woman from having been in Samoa. While we were there, because we lived right there in the dispensary, at one point, one year, I taught at the high school in order to, you know, to be more involved with the, the village. They gave me social studies and PE and health, but the best thing was they gave me Samoan history. And when they handed over in Pongo Pongo in, on the main island, when they handed me the book for Samoan history, they said, now, this is controversial over there. Well, in Tau, it's the place where Polynesia began. Like, the people left, traditionally, they left there and went to Hawaii and they branched out in different parts of the Pacific. And according to the, the Matais, you know, the people in Tau, only certain people are allowed to know the history. So I couldn't even get any of the chiefs to come in. But their history is not about dates and wars. It's all about people and stories. So it was the most interesting history, and particularly this Queen Salamacine that lived 400 years ago, during her 50-year reign, there was no wars at all. The other thing I guess I was going to say, because we lived in the dispensary and Bert would always be there when the kids got home from school, I was asked to do some what, what's called travel teaching to some of the islands in the Pacific, some of the other island countries. And I'd be gone for three or four or six weeks at a time. One of the beauties is, as a Baha'i, when you travel to another country, is that you, you're coming in having the same guidance, have the same values, and the same pattern of life and what we're trying to accomplish. And you come in as equals, and so it's not like a tourist at all. There's that freedom to ask questions, because you're like one family again. Also, I should say, when you go to Fiji, 
You don't take a, a bathing suit. If you go in the water, you're, you're going in a muumuu. <laughs> but, but I think I was many weeks in Fiji and never did go in the water. <laughs> in Fiji, I took at one of the travel teaching trips, I took my daughter, who's African-American, and the Fijians have that same look about them, but the other half of the culture are from India. Their dress and their culture is totally different than the Fijians. One of the reasons I took my daughter is people were calling her names. You know, they're affected by the cousins that live in California. There are more Samoans in California than in Samoa. Anyway, I wanted her to see a whole lot of people that looked like her, that were, you know, beautiful, and just to help her self-concept. And the funny thing was she was so taken by the Indian culture there, the saris and the food and the, the dot on the forehead. And so, if anything, she came back more Indian than <laughs> Fijian. We were there for 10 years and then were in Hawaii for a year and a half. The reason we had to leave is that my husband, the year before we left, he had a quintuple bypass, and that was done at the Samoan government's expense in Hawaii. And then within the same year, he had his foot amputated also in Hawaii. The government of Samoa just could not bear the expense for somebody who was not Samoan. When he was in the hospital, he was there for quite some time because they didn't want to just straight amputate. They kind of did bit by bit. But at the point that he was feeling the lowest, the doctor came in that had done the surgery said, Bert had a wife and five children that were dependent on him, and we're, we're in Samoa, and, and the doc said, you know, we need more people like you around here. He really valued Bert, and he ended up creating a job for him. Bert, you know, was very gracious the next day and said, you know, that's very nice. You don't have to do that. And, and the doc said, well, that's okay. I... But I'll, I'll just do my best. I'm, I'm only the chief of staff, and he named a few other things. And the other thing that happened in the meantime was I was part of the Promise of World Peace Tour to Russia, was sponsored by the Baha'is in Hawaii, and I was representing Samoa. It was a very last-minute thing, and about 50 of us went, were asked by this group, had been invited by the youth ambassadors to bring the peace statement produced by the House of Justice in 85-86 and bring it into Russia. The House of Justice created a peace statement that was meant for the whole world, and it initially said that this has been promised by all of the religions of the past. This has been promised to all of the peoples. And it will come about, and it can either come about through the will, you know, the effort and will of the people now, or as a result of a lot of suffering. Then it went into the various areas that things needed to be looked at. For example, the equality of men and women, and that would involve the education of the girls, because they're the next generation of mothers who are the first teachers. Etc. That that would be an example, mm-hmm. and the reason why we were asked is that there had been some Russians, 
youth that had come to Hawaii, spent the summer, and then they were leaving, and they were all gathered at a camp. Two Baha'is offered to do the cooking for them that week. They were hosted by the youth ambassadors. And so the the two Baha'is did the cooking, and then as a, a little gift to them when they left, they gave them this peace message. It's a number of pages. And the Russian students were so excited about it. When the youth ambassador people had saw that, that's when they asked the National Baha'i uh, Assembly of, of Hawaii, would they be willing to bring a group of youth into Russia to take this message? And, and actually, at this time, things were so sensitive, and this is in the late 80s, things were so sensitive that the Baha'is in Moscow did not know each other. They were not allowed to meet each other. I'll just say the result of those nine days we were able, instead of going to St. Petersburg, as we expected, instead of staying at hotels, we end up being put in pioneer camps. This is outside of Moscow. And the pioneer camps, that's, the pioneers were like Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, the communist youth groups. And the camps were really meant for summer, and this was November, December. And so the water was freezing, and, you know, everything. It was, it was quite cold. You know, we thought we were staying, going to be staying in hotels. We thought we were going to St. Petersburg. Well, this opportunity came to go to Kazan. Kazan is where the, the university where Lenin had been. The most recent history is that there was a movie director that was filming what's been going on there recently. This is in the late 80s. There were a lot of random killings. All right, it was a great opportunity, but it would be very dangerous. So in this group of maybe we were 40, there were young people, there were some parents of those young people, and then there were some of us from other places. And there was consultation. And now, mind you, the, there were several Armenians that had host, had you know prepared our food. They didn't know English, but they were kind of watching in the shadows. And they saw that this consultation, that everyone had a chance to speak. Leaders didn't say, You're gonna, we're going to do this, or, you know, whether you like it or not. Everybody had a chance to speak. We didn't know what we were going to do. And a lot of what was spoken were the fears. And then one thing was mentioned about, well, if somebody was killed, you know, we know wonderful things about the next world, so it wouldn't be all that bad. Well, then we all had prayers, and there was a vote, and it was unanimous for us to go. Well, this really, I think, touched the hearts of the Armenians. Well, since then, we were in Hawaii and just for two years, and then we were asked if we would come and be caretakers at the Native American Baha'i Institute. Now, that's a non-paying job. The kids and I accepted, and Bert, at the same time, was asked, would he please come to serve in Ganado at this hospital there for on weekends, because they could not get a doctor to 
work on the weekends, even though they would contract somebody from Phoenix or Tucson. It, it wasn't that regular. So we ended up then being on, on the Navajo Reservation for several years. My husband was there for nine. While I was there, after a couple of years at the Institute, I felt I needed to resign for family reasons. It was about an hour away where Bert was. And our oldest son ended up into the Army when we were in Hawaii. Anyway, our oldest son took his life Mm. after he came back from the Army. We'll never know all the things that happened there because he was this gentle soul. It was a couple of years after that a person at an international level called to see how I was and also to find out about another person who was planning on going to China. And as she talked, one thing led to another, and she said they really need a middle-aged person to go to Siberia because the youth workshop, this is a group that has done performances, dances, and things that have to do with the various Baha'i principles. And she said, you know, we need to have somebody older so that the general population knows this is not just a youth movement. This is And I said, well, I'm not great on language, but, you know, I could take my daughter. The youngest daughter was nine now at that point. So it ended up we spent the better part of a year in Siberia and and Mongolia. But the thing I want to tell you, I've since learned that I believe our oldest son was dealing with a mental illness, and, and that has caused me now in Maine to, for the last 10 years, working with NAMI, which does education and support for people and families that have a mental illness. At that time, I didn't understand, and I felt like here I'd been a, you know, we'd had this large family. I felt like I was a good parent, but I, I failed as a parent. I failed him. But I was willing to go to Siberia, and one of the women in one of the cities where we were in the towns that we were, was this very powerful, what we think of this very big and powerful Soviet woman, whatever your stereotype is. She hosted us, she hosted us, she hosted us. Then at one point, I found in this conversation that was mainly in Russian, I caught the fact that her husband had committed suicide a year before. Well, I just burst out crying because I... I could just feel what she must feel. And what that taught me was that, in a very real sense, we're told not to worry about our limitations, our weaknesses, that God will use them. And here, the thing that I thought was my greatest failure in life was being used to open the heart of somebody else. So... I'm now in Maine. I had to come back to take care of my mother, and then we ended up, after my mother's passing, being in my great-grandmother's house that had been out of the family for years, and I am planning to go to Greenland for about three months. I feel like at this time in my life, there's a lot of things I'm can't do very well, I can't really organize people or materials, but 
we're to go and accompany the friends there to do what they're doing. And just even though you're not anyone special or important or have any position, it does create some sort of movement that might not have happened otherwise. So it's only on the knowledge of what happened in Siberia that I can trust that I can be of value, even though I don't feel very valuable. (laughs) (laughs) Joanne, I want to thank you so much for telling your story. It's amazing. Well, the result is a very rich life. I'm so grateful. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joanne Miriam a Baha'i who has raised special needs children and has lived or traveled all over the world. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.